This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention, I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash startalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash startalk today. Welcome Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. Welcome to Star Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm an astrophysicist with the American Museum of Natural History right here in New York City, where I also serve as director of the Hayden Planetarium. This week, my co-host is the one, the only, Eugene Merman. Eugene, welcome Hello. back. Great to be back. You, you, you like my co-host so often now. I know. Like, is that a good thing or not? I don't know. I think it's a great thing for both of us <laughs> <laughs> and for the world, <laughs> mostly the world and then us. You know, this, this show topic is long overdue. You know what this is going to be about? The zombie apocalypse. Yes, the living coming back to life. Well. Or never quite dying enough. To be not dead enough. Yeah. And, you know, zombies, I, I, I have to admit, I am, I'm a little surprised how, uh, how popular the genre has become. How popular zombies are. Yeah. I, I don't understand it. I mean, it's not well, like- Well, are zombies uh, the dead risen or are they simply uh, sort of <laughs> very sick people who bite and are powerful? <laughs> So rather than me being the one who answers yeah. that, I we thought I'd like check with others who've thought long and hard about this. And Sean Penn. <laughs> we, <laughs> we'll get to that in just a moment. Because zombies, in fact, have been analogized to viruses, the spread of disease. Mm-hmm. And if you think of a disease not as a human being wanted to bite you with their limbs falling off, but as as a, as the vector delivering vessel of a way to get sick as a tiny invisible human being the size of a virus 
one way to do it. So you know, we so we combed the land, mm-hmm. and we went. We needed to find the most virus fluent person we could, and we came up with Doctor Ian Lipkin. Doctor, welcome to Star Talk Radio. A pleasure to be here. I got to read your title. You are like professor of epidemiology, neurology, and pathology at Columbia University, and you also direct the Center for Infection and Immunity, which is a lab focused on microbe hunting and chronic diseases. That that you know, and now I noticed you didn't shake hands with anyone when you walked in here. I don't know what petri dish you've been digging in before you arrived. Yeah, at first I thought it was to save yourself, but now I realize it's to save me. <laughs> to save human beings from yourself. And you're also director of the Northeast Biodefense Center. I didn't even know such a thing existed. What is that? Well, that's that's part of our guess. role is to make sure you don't know who we are. <laughs> that's right. But you're biodefending me, I, I would we hope. Are. You ever consult on the movie Contagion? Yes, many times. What did you do? Did you do your homework before you no, came I'm just here? Guessing. I mean, look at the thing. And okay, so you're sense. not only uh, you're not only professor. We study this stuff, but you've been tapped by pop culture for this expertise. So, how did Contagion do as a movie? Did they get it right? It did well. It did well. No, no. I mean, I mean, scientifically, did they? It did well scientifically too. I mean, if you say uh, so yourself. Well, you know, I didn't have any of the back end, if that's what you're asking. But I was paid. Uh, Always uh, get the back end. Yeah. Well, it's. I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> it's I know fine. now. But uh, actually, it was fairly accurate. Mm-hmm. We did not tackle zombies. No, not in, in, in the movie. But but we wanted to find out why they relate to each other at all. In fact, for this show, I have you as my sort of expert in-house scientist commentator on an interview that I captured with Max Brooks, who, if you're into sort of who's genetically related to whom out there, he's the son of Mel Brooks, it turns out. Yeah. One of the top Brookses in the world. And I, and I didn't know this guy is like one of the world's experts on zombies. And it was my interview with him where I first learned of this sort of sociocultural analog between zombies and disease. And I bumped into him when we were at Comic-Con 2012 in San Diego. Crazy place, as crazy as I'd ever imagined it to be. But let's pick up with my interview with Max Brooks. And we've got uh, Dr. Lipkin here to help us react to it. Just to put Max Brooks on your radar, he's the author of the book, The Zombie Survival Guide and World War Z which is an oral history of the zombie war. And in fact, that book is becoming a movie titled World War Z starring guess who? Uh, Matt Damon. <laughs> That's close enough. Know. Brad Pitt. You Brad know, one, Pitt. Of, one of the leading men of the day. Yeah, yeah. Let's, check like out my fir- Let's check out my first clip and see where he takes us and leaves us in this story. I based the zombie virus on AIDS. Mm. On the transmittability. On the transmittability, because I wanted to make it very hard to get, just like AIDS was very hard to get. And therefore, from a storytelling point of view, the mistakes were made by us. Because the truth is, let's face it, if in 1980, Reagan had gone on TV and said, my fellow Americans, there's a disease that's real hard to get, but if you get it, it's going to be really bad. Here's 10 things you can do to avoid it. Boom. AIDS would have been a, a paragraph in a medical journal. So it's just some exotic cases. Just right. To, it would have been, oh, remember to... that weird disease in the right. 80s? We mm-hmm. called it GRID. So I wanted to make it about our mistakes. Oh, you're saying it, we could have rendered AIDS extinct. We could have made AIDS extinct with a pamphlet. That's how we could have stopped it. Because we're not talking about influenza. We're not talking about Ebola restin. We're talking about something that's really hard to get. Like airborne viruses, sneeze-borne viruses. It's not cholera. It's not waterborne. It's so hard to get. But through our mistakes as a society, we let the genie out of the bottle. 
So this formed an infectious disease model for you. Yeah, that was purely my model because I'm 40 years old. So I'm a child of the AIDS generation. Yay. Okay. So there's a zombie virus, I guess. Right. There's a zombie virus. It's out there. You just declare it. And then, <clears throat> right. then you could treat it like it's a biological weapon, in a sense. Right. And my attitude is I'm not as interested in the origins as I am in the reaction. Because, quite frankly, I don't care where AIDS came from. You know, I love green monkeys. Good for you guys. But what I care about is how we reacted to it. Doctor, this is the first time I'd heard zombies analogize to infectious disease. And he went right out and implicated sort of AIDS as something that could have been stopped on the spot. Uh, and I think I'd heard that in some other circles. But you, this, you, you live in this. How do you see that assessment? Well, um, if only that were true. Oh, okay. So it was a little so, oversimplified. So in 1981 to 84, I was in San Francisco when this virus first appeared. First of all, it took us a while to figure out what it was. And that's also true. Yeah, you're groping in the dark. Today. Right, right. We have no idea. Yeah. And we were looking at whether or not people had uh, overexposure to different types of drugs. And we had the wrong virus a couple of times. And we finally figured out what it was. But even then, I don't think a pamphlet would have changed the course. What if the pamphlet history. was huge? <laughs> that's like, right. What if, is it that it's just too small? <laughs> that's an interesting thought. I hadn't considered the possibility <laughs> a of a pamphlet. pamphlet say two feet by four feet. Blanketing <laughs> the United States. No, your yes. issue is not that it wasn't read enough, but that even a pamphlet that was read perfectly would not have worked. Because people no. already knew about STDs and they didn't yeah. care about those. STDs have been with us since the beginning of time and I don't think they're like going the Big anywhere. Bang? <laughs> That's right. Go. That was one of That the is things. the literal beginning of time. <laughs> he meant the beginning of humans on Earth. Okay. <laughs> and I give a herpes break here. flew out <laughs> of a star well, Big, at big Earth. Bang might have been a, an orgasm. Who knows? They, yeah. well, we got to take a quick break. <laughs> God. We'll come right back with Dr. Lipkin and my co-host Eugene Murmur. We're talking about zombies. We're talking about viruses. We're Star Talk. Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm here in studio with Eugene Merman. Hello. Eugene, as always, tweeting at Eugene Merman. Yes. Yes, I, I follow you. You make me laugh. Thank you. Not every single tweet, but no, enough but, that I stay you know, with you. Exactly. And I learn from you almost every time. <laughs> and joining me straight from Columbia, Columbia University, Dr. Ian Lipkin, who like studies viruses. This is what this man does. And does he bathe every hour i don't know is he a walk i don't know what where he's been or where he's going but he's an expert on this stuff and we we left the last segment with my interview with max roach max roach that's the guy from little rascals uh with sure. max brooks <laughs> max brooks a zombie uh, expert. Uh, he's a zombie expert and we analogize zombies to the aids virus and you were concerned about how he oversimplifies this uh how rapidly it it could have been um, the spread could have been prevented, I guess. Look, I want to go on record as saying that I'm very concerned about zombies. Okay. Yes. Excellent. They, they keep me up at night. <laughs> Excellent. The only apocalypse any of us should ever actually worry about. You've heard it here first. Um, so I guess a big challenge, you were in San Francisco when AIDS broke out. And a big challenge there is finding the, the patient zero, I guess, right? And at some point, this came from animals, right? I mean – Yes, uh, 70% of Animals these, other than humans, yes. Yeah, 70% of the diseases we're concerned about, these emerging diseases, uh, 
come from animals. Either, like mad you know, cow, I guess. They- well, mad cow disease, West Nile virus, influenza, rabies. SARS? Whole, SARS. SARS is an acronym for what? Uh, severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Okay, that means you don't really know. That's <laughs> you, you kind of said it a little slowly where you're like, I could define it right now for everyone. <laughs> no, but man, it doesn't have a fancy name yet. You're just yeah. spelling it out. It's yeah. a pretty good name. Yeah. SARS. It's not bad. I it's like catchy. it. It's catchy. I would have a band with that name if I had Literally. to play music. So all diseases aren't spread the same way, clearly. And this must have been part of your greatest challenges at the beginning of this. Yeah, so there are diseases that are spread through the blood supply, respiratory tract, fecal material, urine, all kinds of waste. And people do weird stuff with human excrement. People do very weird yeah. stuff. Right. <laughs> There's a lot of punk rockers in danger of getting a bunch of weird diseases. Right, right. So you've got to be on your toes for this. But the most efficient one is always blood. That's the best. It That's just, my favorite. You really, <laughs> I mean, if I was going to give someone a disease. If you want to be a blood. virus, it's it, like, well, you know, the other one, of course, is sexually transmitted diseases, and they frequently is a lot of overlap. Uh-huh. Because... Cool. People, you know. Yeah, but people don't exchange blood every day. No, right? that's, as an, as that's a, true. As a typical. Because they, they do don't ex- make bonds every day. But they certainly do exchange other bodily fluids. For Name sh- four. For sure. Just kidding. Please <laughs> don't. <laughs> so how did you go about finding? Uh, so the first AIDS was isolated when? The virus. Well, so the virus was discovered in 83. But I didn't discover that virus. That okay. was discovered really by. No a, one's blaming you. By my, my French team. <laughs> so I was an observer. But and, I was impressed by the fact that it took us so long to figure out what it was. How long had it been infecting people before you guys isolated it? Oh, the first documented case of HIV infection goes back to 59, but it really surfaced in a major way in 8081. So you went back to 59 once you knew what to look for well, and then again, you looked at the journals it's, of symptoms. It, it's the royal we. So I didn't do any of that. I got you. It's yeah. science. It's yeah. science. Yeah. Medical yes. science. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. My buddies. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Your brethren yes, in the community. Brother. Yes, yes. Uh, so, all right. So you, the earliest cases, once you dig through the books, are 1959, but it's, it starts showing a big in early 80s, obviously. Correct. You isolated in 83. Then what do you Along do? with New Wave, not blaming, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> well, then the first thing you want to try to do is to develop a diagnostic test so you can figure out who has it, who doesn't yet have symptoms, and you can protect the blood supply so you can test blood. Oh, for blood donors, of yeah, course. Exactly, oh, yeah, exactly, for blood oh, yeah. donors. And then and then everybody starts focusing on trying to make a vaccine, right? right? I remember having a conversation in 84 with some senior virologists who said to me, you shouldn't work on HIV, Ian. We're going to solve this one with a vaccine within the next six months. So this is now 20-plus years later, and uh, we're still nowhere near a vaccine. So what, what? why were they overconfident? They just had too high... high uh, were the ideals too high, or did they think they God were smarter? Complex. They, they thought they were smarter than they actually were. This was really new. I mean, nobody really had seen a virus that had the ability to change its shape so dramatically, so quickly. Shape-shifting virus. A shape-shifting virus. But I'm glad they were cocky about how quickly they could solve it nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. They're like, I've never seen this before, but I'm pretty sure I could definitely yeah, solve this. Yeah, that is really cocky. And, and so AIDS, uh, from what I can tell about this uh, – from what I could tell, uh, what made it hard is that you get infected, but you don't know you're infected for a little while. So there's this period where you keep infecting people before you even know you're susceptible. Exactly and that period right. years, like decades. It can be. Yeah. Well, let's let's pick up my interview with Max Brooks, who has analogized for us the zombie apocalypse with this spread of virus. And the whole, my whole conversation with him fused was was infused with these kinds of references. And like I said, we met up with him at Comic Con 2012 in San Diego. Yes. Let's check out what more he has to say. 
in my stories, you have to get bitten or the virus has to get in your bloodstream. You get sick, you die, then you wake up again. As a zombie. As a zombie. Your body has been carjacked by the zombie virus. Wait a minute. If I'm bitten by a zombie, it won't kill me. I have to wait to die for some other cause? No, no, it will kill you. It will kill me. It will kill you within hours or days, but you're going down. By the way, there's been about 110 billion people who have ever lived. Not all those people are eligible zombies no. because they're bone. Oh, no, no, no. You got to be fresh. It's not like suddenly the graveyards of the world are going to erupt forth. Oh, no, 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 no. How, how fresh? Alive. They got to be alive and then die and then come back. So really fresh. Really fresh. Like embalmed fresh. Not even that. If a zombie walks into a morgue, sounds like a joke. <laughs> Yeah. Zombie walks, into, zombie a walks morgue. into a morgue, for some reason starts biting dead bodies. Those dead bodies aren't going to come back to life. They're gone. Once you die, you die. Literally, if I'm running from a zombie and he's about to eat me and I suddenly have a heart attack and die and then he bites me, I ain't coming back. Okay, so zombies crawling out of graves is the wrong image no, that you're... No, especially because, let's face it, how many people today are buried, especially in America, in these zinc boxes? Oh, and even if it was a wooden box, they're not getting out. No, that's like the uh, cemetery. Able-bodied human. Oh, yeah. Uma Thurman can get out of a, a box. that's it. That's it. That's it. No, that's I always it. say a cemetery is one of the safest places to be because all the dead bodies are basically locked up in safes. <laughs> okay, so we shouldn't fear cemeteries anymore. Don't fear cemeteries. Okay, so just to clarify... You're a zombie chasing me, you bite me, I become a zombie, period. Right, right. I bite you. And I'm, I got all my muscles are intact. Right. Step one, I, I'm a zombie, I'm chasing you. Step two, I bite you. Step three, you get away and you go, oh, I got away. Oh, but I got this nasty bite. Step three, you get sick and die. Step four, you wake up as a zombie. And what's the time between dying and waking up? It depends on how badly I've bitten you. If I've, let's say, tore out a major blood vessel, you're going to die very soon. But if I scratch you, it may take days. Gotcha. And so... When I saw, I don't, forgive me, I don't even remember what movie it is because there's so many zombie films out there. So one of them was their best friend got a scratch and they knew they knew. he was a goner. That happens and a so lot he said, now. shoot me in the head now. There's, so there's an interesting dynamic tension because right. they're for your friend and they're not yet a zombie. And that to me is, is what's so powerful because it builds the drama. In the storytelling. It's like, oh my God. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, you go into the doctor's office and he tells you, you got something and you're not going to recover from it. But you've got six months to live. You'll have six months, but you won't really be living. Right. You You'll be thinking about dying. Every day. Every day. So uh, my interview with, with, uh, with Max Brooks there. So uh, Dr. Lipkin, you, the fundamental variance here is that some diseases have a longer incubation time where you are dangerous to others whether or not you know it. And that's that's got to be the worst kind of virus there is. Uh, well, uh, there, it depends. I mean, we have he's this... He's got another one cooking uh, up I don't lab. know. Ebola sounds pretty bad, too. <laughs> You're like, you have years where you can still make omelets. That's not as bad. Ebola, like, when blood comes out your face and you die, sounds worse. <laughs> yeah, there, there, to me. there are some viruses that cause very little disease, but they spread very rapidly and very easily. And there's some viruses, I think, the, Eddie Murphy talked about herpes simplex. You know, you, oh, you keep it forever like luggage, uh-huh. keep it like yeah. luggage. You know, you never get rid of it. But most yeah, people Beverly don't Hills die. Cop. People yeah, don't normally die from herpes. No. And Ebola is definitely a bad one to have. Yeah. Um, my major concern with his... Um, What's your least favorite? Is, oh. this is, but if you're a zombie, this is sort of like a Ponzi scheme, you know, because eventually you run out of bodies. Right, yeah. right, right. Right, you know, so you bite somebody, you it's bite somebody, and eventually. It's a self-defeating virus. Yeah, it's a self-defeating virus. I'm just particularly concerned because once you know you are infected, then 
a responsible person could keep their distance or they th- could. If you don't know you're Just infected like AIDS. and you are infected, that makes you especially dangerous in society. Isn't that correct? It is true. So viruses have different lifestyles. Some kill their host very rapidly or they kill some portion of the host, like the respiratory tract, flu viruses, things like this. Uh, but because they can always find another victim easily, they survive. They evolve and they they take over and they do quite well. And they float out of your body through the air and right. sneeze and exactly. there you go. And, mm-hmm. and some of them are spread in fecal material and so forth. Feel like it's all We got to take another break. You're listening to Star Talk Radio, the zombie virus edition. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. You know, you can find us on the web at www.startalkradio.net. We're also likable on Facebook. Eugene, are we likable? I think so, Good. yeah. <laughs> Just confirming that. Totally likable. Uh, we're here with Dr. Ian Lipkin, who's a professor of everything virally nasty at Columbia. Uh, I don't know if that's on his business card, but... Dr. It probably Lipkin. says something clearer thanks and for, less scary. Thanks for being on Star Talk. We're analyzing sort of a zombie apocalypse, but analogizing that to the spread of viruses. And we've got clips from my interview with Max Brooks, who's in fact, uh, he wrote the book on which 
you know, you, zombie apocalypse stories have been you know, based. If, if somebody catches this interview in the wrong place, they're going to think that you are really getting information about actual zombies. Actual zombies. And well, how to actually survive. They just have to listen from the beginning. Yeah, that, well. That's called the rewind button. I look forward button. to the four that don't. <laughs> uh, let's go straight to uh, my, my clip with uh, Max Brooks. And we talk about how you spread viruses, not through sex, not through kissing or other uh, traditional bodily fluids, but by the simple bite. Let's find out what he said. Sexy bite. Why is the zombie compelled to bite you? Why do they even care? It's their biological imperative to spread the virus. Through the eating, they're not ingesting nutrition, but it is an act that is familiar to their DNA. They already know how to eat, and that's the best way to spread the virus is to bite. So they're a perfect viral organism right. in that respect. They are a walking plague. They have no other point but to spread what they are. They're literally a virus. Okay, so why does it seem like in some movies I've seen where zombies attack a person and it looks like they want to eat them, like vultures around a carcass? Because more than one of them don't have to attack the same right, human. Right, no, no, and they are, they are eating. They're not smart enough to know that if you eat too much of the person, it won't be mobile enough to keep going. But there's nothing more primal in the human mind than to eat, than okay. to bring food to your mouth. That's mm -hmm. it. We know that. Infants do that. From infants. They bring it to your mouth even if it's not food. Exactly. Right. And therefore, the virus doesn't have to teach the zombie to do that. So, doctor, the AIDS is transmitted sexually, but it's a blood exchange at some level, correct? It's at some level, yeah. All right. So, if you are if you have AIDS and you bite someone, you can give them AIDS through your bite, in principle. No, no, no. Oh, okay. Not even a little. What if you bite their ding dong? <laughs> <laughs> Just curious. That's that's the after hours show. We can uh, try that. So, but but clearly, though, rabies is among those that are bite transmitted. Right? That's the way it's typically transmitted. So it's yeah. a saliva to blood. I right. Guess. So the virus grows very, very high levels in the salivary glands. So it's in the saliva. And one of the things that happens as, as animals get in the later stages of rabies is that they have difficulty swallowing. And they also become very aggressive. And they bite other animals, not to eat them, but again, just because they're aggressive. So this feature of the virus changing the behavior of the host is in the service of the survival of the virus. Yes. The propagation uh, of the virus. A way, that's certainly a way of looking if at it. If people had rabies, would they want to bite people? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, that hasn't, you know, there aren't a lot of people who have been observed in those stages of rabies. Like most rabies colonies, time, right. <laughs> yeah. Most of the time, yeah, most of the time. That's it's something really, we should do with prisoners just to see. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay, Eugene. <laughs> Most hey, of the time, it's like just, just dogs. Just an idea. And, yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. So had the had that virus triggered dogs to rest peacefully in the corner, then the rabies virus would render itself extinct. Probably so. Wow. So all the variations of the rabies virus, the one that makes you want to bite other dogs or other mammals, uh, that's the virus that propagates itself. Yeah, There's natural the selection. Natural. Sound. So the virus, for, for a virus to succeed, it can't kill all of the hosts before, and it certainly can't kill the host in which it's living until it has an opportunity. Because it's rude? <laughs> until it has an opportunity to jump into a new one. Yeah, oh. so you have to live long enough to spread it. Right, exactly. Otherwise, it will die. Because I heard that that's true about cholera, for example. If cholera is too effective, you can't even move to another place and infect someone with it. So the virus kills you and nobody else. That's it's got to just have a little bit of time delay. Yeah. But the other thing that, that cholera does, which is, really, which is really interesting, is it, it causes diarrhea. Right? Yeah, so funny. that yeah. so that 
lots of viruses spread out into the environment so that it can find new hosts. Into the water supply. And, and what it's purposefully doing. Right. So, Well, the, the, I guess the, the, the cholera that made you constipated. Uh, would die. Wouldn't do very well either. the cholera that made you poo lives. Right. <laughs> That's its slogan if it had a chance. <laughs> poo to, have to a live. Yeah, poo to live. Slogan. <laughs> I'm just trying to help and I can't get that out of my, itself. I, I can't get that out of my head now. Viruses with slogans. Yeah. Because <laughs> eventually they're going to have to fight each other once they kill us all. So pro- professionally, what viruses are you guys most worried about in today? It's the 21st century. Just oh, the, top three in order. What is it? HIV. It still, still for me is oh the, is, is the big one. I That's mean, too bad. I mean, it's still more out than there. something like Ebola or things that like make you bleed out of your face if you look at someone or however. How does it? Spread? Well, if you're if you're asking me what bothers me most in terms of the state of the world, mm-hmm. it really is HIV. It's HIV. And number two would be influenza, uh-huh. and number three would be the one I don't know about mm. because That's we're seeing new things one. all the time. And one of the greatest sources of unknown viruses is other mammals. Yeah. And that's a reminder how genetically we're related, we, we're related to them because if you can jump species, as far as the virus is concerned, it's just another kind of mammal, right? It's not – That's correct. We're not going to ever catch Dutch elm disease. <laughs> I, have, I have a question. I knew wait, wait. Uh, hold that, hold okay, that for the break. The uh, after the break, you're listening to Star Talk Radio. We're talking about viruses. We're talking about zombies. We're talking about getting bitten and dying. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. You know, we tweet at Star Talk Radio. Uh, check it out. You get all find out where all our live shows are and uh, uh, when we're on the air, when we're not, who our guests are. Uh, go ahead and follow us there. Now, we're today's subject is zombies, viruses. So I've got the zombie expert in clips that we obtained from my last trip to... to you recorded him at Comic-Con. At Comic-Con. And so I got that side of it. And I got the viral side of it with Dr. Ian Lipkin from up at Columbia University, uh, one of the world's experts on viruses and how they transmit. And I, could you just give us some virus 101 here? Uh, are they alive? And how? what the hell are they? Just, you know, in 30 seconds, can you do... <laughs> Actually, why don't we why don't we start off with the Max Brooks clip because he's going to talk about the science of zombies and then we can talk about the science of the virus. I'm right. looking forward to this coming right sure. after that. Let's do it. Let's hit my let's hit that clip with Max Brooks. Check it out. Now I assume you saw that research paper on zombies that came out maybe a year ago or so. It treated zombies in a predator prey. <clears throat> Yes. Uh, calculation. Did well, that get a lot of mileage in your circles? Oh, yeah. Well, no, what I love is that you're starting to get genuine thinkers. You're starting to get genuine academics and, and smart people who are really looking at a zombie plague from an academic point of view. There was a, a Canadian mathematician who did a model, a mathematical model of how the zombie virus would spread. I thought it was brilliant. I think that was the paper I saw. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, there's a gentleman from Harvard, Dr. Steve Schlossman, who wrote a book on the brain patterns of zombies. And he described now. What is now? Come on, was this from the medical school, the yes, Harvard Medical it was Harvard School? Harvard Medical School. And I mean, look, you got to give him a break. I mean, it's not like he went for, to Yale. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so so what is he imagining is the brain pattern? Well, he describes it as the crocodile brain. He describes that the, the frontal lobes of the zombies have deteriorated and the higher brain functions have gone with them. Oh. And it's the lower brain functions, the more basic. Basic survival. Right. Eat. Eat and move, which is what a crocodile brain is, and that's why he calls it that. 
that why crocodiles don't have foreheads? <laughs> That's an excellent. I've never asked one. I've never gotten close enough to ask one. Help, Dr. Lipkin, what, what is a virus? Uh, I'm still trying to get my brain around a crocodile brain. A crocodile. <laughs> a virus is a, is a piece of genetic information that's wrapped up in protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to call the – a very famous virologist once referred to a virus as a, a piece of bad news wrapped up in a protein coat. Mm. What they do is they it's inject – evil beef jerky. Evil, very evil beef jerky. Well, um, why can't you have good viruses? You can have good viruses. All right then. So yes. don't implicate the entire group. <laughs> is, what's the best virus? Is there one that makes you super strong or you can fly? Yeah. How about a virus that makes us smarter? Why don't you come up yeah. with one of those? Huh? Or like a spider who is also a man. <laughs> Just an example. That's terrific. I'll get right right to work on it. I'm sure Columbia would be excited about the intellectual property with that one. Go. Yes. If you yeah. make an actual Spider-Man, you then reowns you get it from Stanley. You know, viruses are much, much smaller than bacteria, right? Like yes. a thousandth the size or something. So there's some like- large ones now that have been discovered recently that you can actually visualize under a microscope. Like a the size microscope. of like an antelope or a human foot? <laughs> <laughs> of a hangnail, because that's what any, the rest of us do under a microscope. Uh, <laughs> but with, if you can, uh, but they're so small. Most of them are very, very small. That creates one of the challenges of right. dealing with them, I guess. So what right? they do is they go into a cell and they hijack the machinery of the cell and they turn the cell over to their own design. So they start making genes and proteins and basically hijacking the cell. They're not only evil, they're diabolical. They are diabolical. Okay. They're the Saddam Hussein of whatever that would be in analogy. <laughs> no, Brian Mallow, who's a, called the science comedian, one of my favorite jokes of his was a virus walks into a bar. The bartender says, sorry, we don't serve viruses. So the virus turns him into a bartender that does and then orders his drink. <laughs> a little bit of bio humor there. Uh, so, 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 uh, but most viruses that you care about are the bad kind, I presume. Yes. And so what does the CDC do, the Center for Disease Control? Are they protecting us or is it only you with your organization up there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly not going to touch that one directly. So the CDC has, uh, they have got a mandate to protect us against all sorts of things, uh, including tracking viruses all over the world, bacteria, ensuring the safety of the food supply. Tracking viruses. So you got to know where they're coming, where they're going, so you can put a a gate there, presumably. I mean, a metaphorical gate. Yeah, we have to be able to figure out where they're coming from, where they're going, how they're evolving. North Korea. How we can, right. (laughs) You know, we haven't looked for viruses in North Korea. Because you can't get there, can't touch this. An interesting idea. Let's go. The three of us in my jet... (laughs) <laughs> so there could be viruses brewing that you know nothing about because they haven't actually spread to notice to noticeable places yet. We estimate that there's somewhere between 500,000 and a million viruses that are yet to be discovered. Well, get to work, man. So it's a oh, growth wow. in, it's a growth industry. When we come back to Star Talk Radio, yeah. uh, right now, I mean, we're, we'll, we're, we're learning about the biology of viruses and why they're bad, and I didn't know that there were some good viruses. I know. I can't wait to find out about two good viruses. <laughs> we're, t- we're talking with Ian Lipkin, and I, of course, got Eugene Merman for Star Talk. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, 
you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. By the way, I also tweet the universe. Don't expect them to contain current events, although they occasionally do. It's mostly cosmic brain droppings, really. That's all it is. I've got Eugene Merman here, my co-host, and the continued clips from my interview from Comic-Con with Max Brooks, who's the world's leading authority on the non-existent thing called zombies, which we've yeah. analogized to the spread of disease. Self-appointed, but agreed. Self-appointed. I've got uh, Dr. Ian Lipkin here from Columbia. And let's go straight to my final clip uh, with Max Brooks. I think he was talking about, if you know you're gonna die, what does that do, what anxieties uh, descend upon you? Let's find out. So why is it that the zombies are always, they look like they're in pain? As though they had died a horrible death. Right. Well, for me, the slouching thing, from a storyteller point of view, it builds the drama of anxiety. Because, you know, the difference between fear and anxiety... Is, no, I don't. No, tell me. Well, tell for me, me it's, it's the difference... I, mean, I know literally, but surely there's a storytelling... Well, in my mind, the difference between... The reason I don't do fast zombies, it's the difference between getting shot and getting cancer. You're attacked by a fast zombie, you'll be dead before you know it. But slow zombies, you can outrun them. It's a tortoise and the hare. But you know they're coming. You board up the windows and doors of your house and they're, they're banging. So it's all about exploiting the anxiety it's as about, you tell your story. Yes. It's about pulling out that anxiety, those sleepless nights of knowing that it's coming for you. That's diabolical. You're an evil man. I'm just expressing my own obsessive compulsive neuroses. <laughs> because every time I see zombies struggling down the street, right. I say to myself, why don't we make a zombie that can run right. and outrun you? And but that's no fun. No, and they do. And there's plenty of fast zombie movies. But to me, that's not scary because it's over. You're done. It's the difference also, like, when you skydive, you say, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Boom, you're on the ground. When you scuba dive, there's plenty of time to think of all the ways you can die. <laughs> so if you are so much faster than zombies, why do they always catch up to people? You underestimate them. You always think, I'm going to sprint, and then you tire yourself out, and right. you go take and a And you get some distance, and they're over the horizon, right? and you get complacent. And then you go take a nap, and you wake up, and you're being eaten. This, this whole zombie thing could be solved by simply going to Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> For I've, what it sounds like. I've been like. there once, but I... So, so Dr. Lipkin, uh, do we underestimate the, the threat of viruses in our culture? I'm sure you don't underestimate them because you work with them daily. But do you think other people are too complacent and it'll catch up with us? Well, if we don't fund research on viruses, we're going to be in, in difficult straits. We'll all vote to fund it. Are there any good viruses and what do they do? Yeah, yeah. So we, we heard about bad viruses. There's got to be – all viruses can't be bad. No, no. There are, there are several. The, there are people who are now using viruses to introduce genes for people who have disorders like 
Alzheimer's and diabetes and Parkinson's. So, uh, and, uh, and using viruses to make vaccines. And there's a very cool story. That's viruses are cleverer than we are about how to make that happen. Well, we no, we engineer them. We put things into them and use them as delivery vehicles. Right, because they know how to get in a virus and mess with the DNA in ways that we can't. Right, and they can produce some product that's useful. And there are people who are using viruses now to purify things like gold and to make electric circuits. So they're being used now for nanotechnology. So viruses are very interesting. So this they're is the basis. You can use a virus to make better gold. You Sounds can, safe. <laughs> you can make viruses that will specifically bind to gold or platinum, mm -hmm. and you can flow seawater over them and capture it and concentrate it. Wow. Yeah. So virus, viruses is our future. And you've but, never, you ever steal a virus and put it in someone's soup? Not like a deadly one, but just like, I don't like you and I'm going to make you sick for <laughs> Yeah, me. they tend to die in soup. <laughs> ah, well, maybe a gazpacho then? <laughs> cold solutions. Cold, cold I'll gazpacho. help you think of a solution. So uh, a virus, uh, so that's extraordinary. So the future of, vi of virologist is one not only of curing disease, but of transforming uh, life. Where alchemy left off, virology picks up. Apparently. Yes. He, he said he answered yes to that question. I know. It's true. Viruses are great. <laughs> They're the best. I'm going to get a bag of viruses and sift through it asking them questions. Uh, I, oh, okay. And so now we need viruses to fight other viruses, maybe. I mean. True. Now, now here's, here's something I always wanted to sort of confirm. We create antibodies to viruses when we're exposed to them at a very low level, correct? That's correct. Okay, so why don't why doesn't that work for every virus that we've ever found? Because there are some viruses that we haven't seen before, so we can't mount immune responses to them. Now, fortunately, we have recently discovered, and you should tell Max Brooks about this, a virus that kills zombies. And we plan to disseminate this virus. Ooh. What's the virus? Is it like spinach? Is it a fake uh, virus or is it a real virus <laughs> that prevents people from coming back from the dead? But I promise we're not going to do this prior to the release of his movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. You do it after and then everyone goes yeah. to interview him for how to cure the zombie. I'm sure the movie has its own solution, yeah. uh, like, you know, cutting people's heads off. And yeah, yeah. Something, yeah. a nice, simple solution. <laughs> Blow up the head. Everyone's fine. <laughs> So, doctors, anything uh, – we're running low on time. Anything that we you need to tell us, uh, tell our listeners from the point of view of someone who plays with deadly viruses daily? Support our work. Support – Nothing more ominous could be said. Not wear a condom. Not wear a condom. Not – yeah. Not wash everyone your knows hand. to wear a condom. Okay. Everyone funds someone trying to cure wearing a condom. That's what he's saying. You give me money, you don't need any more condoms. Thank you, Doctor. I was about to call you Doctor. Thank you, Doctor Lipkin, for being on Star Talk Radio. You, a pleasure. You now we know how to kill zombies and stay more healthy. You've been yeah. listening, Eugene. You're always good. Yeah. You've been listening to Star Talk Radio, brought to you in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. As always, I bid you to keep. Looking up. When we come back, we'll have special guest Steven Soder, who co-wrote both Cosmos series with Anne, and also Bill Nye, the science guy. All three of us happen to have been impacted directly by Carl Sagan. Hear more about how and why when we come back. Welcome to the Cosmic Crib section of Star Talk Radio. We're here in my office at the Hayden Planetarium, where during the Cosmic Crib segment, we just chew the fat. 
whatever that fat is. But it's usually cosmic fat. <laughs> it's more of a gristle. <laughs> gristle. <laughs> so, it has connective tissue. That's the voice of Bill Nye. Bill, thanks for coming into the Cosmic Crib. And I also have Steve Soder. Steve Soder, thanks for coming in. Great to he's be a here. friend and a colleague, and uh, he's worked on both cosmoses. Is that the plural of cosmos? Cosmi. 1980, he was co-writer with Andrean and and Carl Sagan, and he was co-writer in in Cosmos as Space Time Odyssey, which I had the privilege of hosting. So, just want to get back to you because we're just we're just chilling here. Uh, so, Bill, you are CEO of the Planetary Society, co-founded many moons ago by Carl Sagan himself. Yeah, in the winter of 1979-1980. So, they people like say 1980. I, I got it in the mail. That was the state of the art. You got a letter. Hey, you want to join the Planetary Society? It's a world organization. But it was a letter, so there was no voice in it. You, you made up that voice. Yeah, I did. Okay. Uh, and so it was, it was sounded cool. That's the know, voice was, you imagined the well, letter it would radio, have. It's a radio voice. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. it, was, um, it sounded exciting. Joined so you the joined the Planetary Society, and now you are CEO of it. So I've been a member since 1980. And, and just give me a two-sentence mission statement. Well, what we do is uh, advance space science and exploration, empowering citizens of the world to know the cosmos and our place within it. There it is. And this is a lot of the spirit that Carl Sagan brought to his work the key professionally word for, and the public. The key word for me is, adv- <clears throat> there's two, I guess there's three key words, advancing <laughs> space science, advancing exploration. And this is something... It's on my mind a lot right now is we ha- we're stuck in a space program that uh, either is doing the same thing it's done for a long time or is doing science. It's going out with specific science uh, goals mm-hmm. to make measurements. Pre- predetermined Instruments goals. designed to do a specific thing, mm-hmm. measure specific things, which is a worthy undertaking to be sure. But there's some great value, and this is what we're trying to bring to the world now. There's great value in just exploration. Go out there and just look. Look, observe, and take measurements. This sounds like, I think it was Einstein who said, uh, research is what I'm doing when I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, so at good. some point, you want to go out there and just not even have an objective, and just explore. Well, the objective would be to take as many pictures as you can, to measure as much radiation as you can, to measure as many temperatures as you can, to measure... Measure chemical, stuff. Uh, but that's observation. That's what you would do if you had your five senses engaged. Yeah, yeah. Or senses in addition to those provided by the methods and tools of science. Yeah. Like yeah. we can see in the infrared exactly. instruments. Exactly. Yeah. And so my claim is, uh, and I talk about this, Carl Sagan alluded to it a little bit, but if we were to discover evidence of life elsewhere would utterly change the world. Now, this I'd really like to hear Steve Soder's mm-hmm. view of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our but part day. Of it, wait, wait, so part of it is, in there is kind of the romance oh, of discovery. absolutely. And this is, and all of Sagan's writings are filled with this, coming and going. And so, Steve, you've been a collaborator with Carl on major projects. So how would you say, the, the, what was the split? in terms of romance versus content versus... Uh, how, how did that, like, shake out? Well, the romance was there, but it was always firmly rooted in the, in the science, in the reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're saying, but, the, but that's, it requires some kind of teasing out of it, because a whole lot of scientists don't know how to speak romantically about their topic. Yeah. Which makes me wonder about them. <laughs> no, seriously. 
don't you, when you make a discovery, this is another phrase I use continually now, is joy of discovery. When you feel that joy of discovery, that's when you want to, that's when your passion comes out, that's when you want to explore further. And, and what was Carl Sagan's edict? When you're in love. When you're in love, you want to tell, tell the, the world. world. Tell the world, right. So. That's right. Well, I'm not sure it's, yeah. No, that's perfect for him. Uh -huh. that, that describes it. Well, that I'm describes not sure it. I'd go with the word edict, but I follow you. Yeah, that the edict a, is a, 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 a commandment. It's aphor yeah. Too many of those words describing those kind of phrases. It's an inspiring sentence thing. Right, thingy, right. <laughs> uh, so, Steve, in the, uh, can you compare the first cosmos to the second? Well, the technology's changed, so... Mm -hmm. um, and no, but in terms of the, uh, creating it, writing it, thinking it up, oh, yes. there's well, got to be a lot that's the yes. same. Yes. Uh, in terms of the subjects, you mean? No, in terms of, of goals. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Steve, was it your idea to do Eratosthenes? This is the original yes. cosmos. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember. It may have been. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Eratosthenes. Kind of the first, first, person, first person, to, person to measure the Earth. To within, the maybe, Earth. Yes. to within maybe 4%. He got it within a few percent. Yeah. With shadows of sticks. Right. May I say, dude. Yeah, this was dude. good. This dude. was good. To measure the circumference. Uh, demonstrating that Earth is a spherical object. Yes. Not just demonstrating that it's a sphere, which a lot of people already knew because you could see it's circular shadow on the moon during an eclipse but wait wait wait, wait just to be clear yeah. he throws disc, that out like just to be clear office. a disc will leave a circular shadow on the moon as well uh, a flat disc only and if it's presented hold on hold on hold on yeah. a disc will leave a circular shadow provided the sunlight is angled in the right way right. and but in every eclipse every single eclipse no matter the configuration that's right. you got it and so right. the only thing that leaves a circular shadow all and always is a sphere is a sphere correct but so a lot of educated people then knew that the Earth was a sphere, but he measured the size, which is a more stupendous achievement. Uh -huh. Based on a, a note. On measuring shadows. I'm walking yeah. down the street. You know, I noticed that where I live, uh, on the longest day of the year, stuns, uh, uh, sticks cast no shadowing see the bottom of the wells. Your friend, stranger. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> what right, the so, heck? So that, that mumbled note is, of course, where must the sun be if you're going to see the bottom of a well? It has to be exactly directly overhead. Right. Otherwise, every other angle is illuminating the side of the well and not the bottom and of the so well. And so he's got this in the back of his head. So in one part of the Earth, this happens on one day of the year. You know, I'm going to wait for the longest day of the year. I'm going to walk outside. Yeah. I'm going to take a look at that. Yeah, yeah. He's got to be thinking. Yeah, the whole, in the background. So that must mean that all the devices that distract us daily are not good for this kind of discovery. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so here's... There are people right now, and this I'd love to get your comment. This is mm -hmm. a tangent. People who are obsessed with uh, with meditation and getting this laser focus on a flame, or a candle flame, or what have you. I thought people who meditate are mo more introspective than extrospective. Uh, that was my well, sense that, of it. My and, uh, What I was going to claim or argue or wonder about is what's going on in the background. That's how I think Eratosthenes worked this problem. That note stuck with him for months, who knows, maybe years, and it was back there, just kind of, why would that be, just while he's eating dinner and uh, thinking But, but it's one thing to describe a story such as this, yeah. but it's another thing for the storytelling to carry depth of emotion, and, and there are scenes then, and even in the current cosmos, where I tear up, and oh, I can't man. be the only one out there for whom this is occurring. Can and, okay. and, so, and so Anne, of course, is a big force in this because yes. you talk to Anne, 
I tear up no ma- almost no matter what she's talking about. I know. But you guys, so just through what? Steve so- Soder and, and the other astronomers at Cornell, like uh, Steve Squires mm-hmm. and Jamie Lloyd, Jim Bell, I've been asked to do the astronomy lecture. You know, I'll do mm-hmm. one astronomy lecture, and I say to myself, "It's getting the class lasts until 12.05, right? 11.15 to 12.05. I get around 12.01, 12, and I go, I hope... I, got, I hope I can do this. I start uh-huh. to I start to tear up. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I start to because <laughs> you're in this. I'm in the same room. The seats are upholstered in the same color. Everything's the same as when I was there. There's some fancy push buttons at the chairs that didn't exist. But man, it so, just gets well, me every push time. Emotional buttons. I mean, there are a lot of ways to do that. Obviously, in one particular case, as I don't know how much the public knows that Anne and Carl, Andrian and Carl Sagan fell in love during the making of the original Cosmos? That's right. Okay. And so now you are the third leg in this collaboration. And uh, I, I think they can't have been easy. Well, actually, they disappeared for about two weeks during the uh, the initial uh, uh, project meetings for, mm-hmm. for, the, for the, the Cosmos. They, went, they were in Paris, deliriously okay. in love. Okay. And so Can't stop the love. You yeah. know, love is, if, if it's happening. And so the production uh, team was meeting in uh, Los Angeles, sitting mm-hmm. around a big table, and they were all looking at me and said, well, Steve, what is this going to be about? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, so you were in charge for two weeks. Well, of yes. <laughs> no, but, but I, Steve, you, you uh, organize things. You, uh, you have helped. a vision, right? Some of it. Yeah. Steve, you know what my problem is with you? When I say, what do you, what do you know about this? You say... Only if you know everything about it will you say that you know something about it. <laughs> That's my problem. With you. I envy him in that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you know something about something, you say you don't know anything about it. Anyway, in his that protects ab- you. Yeah. That protects your. It's in, yeah, it's, it's in, in Carlos' absence, I then threw out a few ideas that I thought maybe the kind of thing he wanted to be in the show. Okay. <laughs> Some of those actually got into the show. Like what? Like what? Uh, well. Can we cut for a second? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Thinking oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll cut that. Uh-huh. All right. We got pe- top people working on this. Go on. Yeah. Well, like one was uh, the story of, of uh, Flatland, imagining the Flatland. fourth dimension. Um, it, Love me people living in two dimensions, right, Flatland. Yeah. Right. Two pe- the two the Edwin Abbott story. Yeah, 1880 story about people living in a two dimensional world who can't imagine a third dimension. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, a metaphor for us living in a three dimensional world who cannot imagine a fourth dimension, but we can see its shadows if we're very clever and think about mm-hmm. what they might look like. Just as so this is kind of stuff that blows people's minds. Yes, yes. And so Carl uh, went with that and, and, and told that story. Well, I'm glad that story was in there because it was played well and, and, and that was good. So in the current Cosmos, what, what, which of the historical stories are you most proud of for putting in? Cosmos is space-time odyssey. Can we have another break? Yeah, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, what, what's your question, Helen? Did you turn it back on? I didn't understand. We got all of that, right? I, I, just I got everything you here. turned it off. No, oh, I didn't. I was almost really going to turn it off. I was just going to add again. time. Katie, I mean Leslie. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, you look like Katie Perry. <laughs> I, uh, what are you keeping track of time? No. We've got about another thirty oh, seconds here. Okay. okay, so you ready? Uh, I stopped uh, the clock. Okay. All right, ready? Yeah. Well, okay. the, there are a lot of them, but one. Okay, wait, it's ready. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be the question. Okay. Uh, so, what are you most proud of in the current cosmos as what, co-writer? Well, 
quite a few things, but one was getting in the story of Ibn al-Haytham, who was a thousand years ago uh, an Arabic scientist uh, living in the Middle East, who was the first to understand how we see, uh, how, how uh, we form images in the eye. That sight is not an active phenomenon, it's yes. a passive phenomenon. Before then, people had thought that we sent out kind of like radar beams to feel <laughs> the environment and they would bounce back and uh -huh, we, uh -huh. we, we, we felt by touching, but no, he realized that it was it was completely passive. And he's actually on, uh, on one of the monetary notes of in Iraq. Yes, he uh, was. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. um, but uh, in the course of writing this and doing a little research, we discovered that uh, he also made the, the first articulation of the scientific method, the experimental method, and of and a caution that you should not just uh, listen to what the authorities of the past have said, but look at what the real world is telling you, and to also question your own prejudices, to be aware of your own uh, predispositions because they could bias you in, in, in a direction that will lead you away from the truth. This is 1600 years before Francis Bacon writes about this in this a philosophical This is about 1,000 A.D., yeah. so we had to put that in. Oh, sorry. Six, so this is about 600 years before right. uh, Francis Bacon right. kicks this in. Right. And this was at a time when when uh, the Arabic world was the, the, the center of science. Uh -huh. And then, uh -huh. of course, it all fell apart. Well, I'm glad we did that story. No, I, I felt good about that. Yeah. Putting it in. Guys, we're out of time. It's the, the crib conversation has got to end. We cannot do great. this forever. It, Thanks for including me. Let's change the world, people. All right. Uh, this is Neil deGrasse Tyson signing off from the Cosmic Crib. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.